Well, good afternoon, everyone. Um, I'm glad to see Pastor Rich trying to cool down uh, the sanctuary. In Ireland, you always know the congregation is getting sleepy when the pastor asks for windows to be open, but that's not something we can do here. So please turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. And yes, as Pastor Rich mentioned, we are coming to the end of our study in Mark's Gospel. Let's read God's Word. Mark chapter 15, and we're going to read verses 1 to 20. Listen. Immediately in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus, led him away, and delivered him to Pilate. Then Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered and said to him, It is as you say. And the chief priests accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. Then Pilate asked him again, saying, Do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you. But Jesus still answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. Now at the feast, he was accustomed to releasing one prisoner to them, whomever they requested. And there was one named Barabbas, who was chained with his fellow rebels. They had committed murder in the rebellion. Then the multitude, crying aloud, began to ask him to do as he had always done for them. But Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd, so that he should rather release Barabbas to them. Pilate answered and said to them again, What then do you want me to do with him, whom you call the king of the Jews? And so they cried out again, Crucify him. Then Pilate said to them, Why, what evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them, and he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. Then the soldiers led him away into the hall called the Praetorium, and they called together the whole garrison, and they clothed him with purple, and they twisted a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and began to salute him, Heal, King of the Jews. Then they struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him, and bowing the knee, they worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Well, this afternoon we're going to talk about Christ, our substitute. And often when we think of substitutes, we think of substitute teachers, teacher is unable to teach for whatever reason and someone else steps in and teaches the class. Or maybe when you hear the word substitute, you think of your Walmart order and whether you will accept or reject the substitutes they offer for the products that they don't have in stock. Or maybe you think of sport. When a player is no longer able to continue playing, a substitute comes on and takes their place. Often the substitute is not as good as the original. Rarely are you excited for the substitute. Instead, you're disappointed. 
They don't tend to be as good. Well, in our passage today, we read of another substitute, Jesus Christ. Many are not impressed with him. He too appears to be disappointing. But he is the substitute who gives life when you deserve death. And so do not place your trust in yourselves or in others or in good times. Instead, put your trust in Jesus Christ, for he is your substitute. He saves you from the death that you deserve and gives you life. So firstly, be wary of your self-righteousness in verse 1. So in our passage today, we see many reactions to Jesus Christ. And it's important for you to consider, what do you think of Christ? What is your reaction? Last week, we considered the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. These are the men who arrested Jesus in the garden. They saw Jesus as a threat to their way of life. They believed they knew the way to God, that it was through their strict observance of the law, that it was through their Jewish heritage. They believed that their sins were atoned for by the sacrificial atonement system in the temple. But Jesus, he had called them out as hypocrites. He had exposed their self-righteousness. And so they hated Jesus. They were sure they were right with God, and they saw no need of Christ. So what do they do? Well, in verse 1, we see them handing Jesus over to Pilate. After the trial in Caiaphas' house, where they convicted Jesus of blasphemy and condemned him to death, we read in verse 1 of how they had this consultation. They had a problem because they did not have the authority to put Jesus to death. Only the Romans can do that. But the Romans are not going to put someone to death on the grounds of blasphemy. The Romans would be condemning themselves, for the Jews see their worship of their gods as blasphemous. And so these men got together, the Sanhedrin got together to find a charge that they could then bring to the Romans. And we can assume from Pilate's question in verse 2 that these Jewish leaders told Pilate that Jesus was an insurrectionist, that he was setting himself up as a king in defiance of Rome. And so the result was they delivered Jesus over to Pilate. And this term deliver or hand over is used multiple times in this chapter or in these chapters. Christ, who is a powerful king, is being handed over. And Jesus is allowing these men to do this because this is God's plan. Jesus submits to God's plan for this is how the king would save his people. And so these religious leaders, they are actually fulfilling God's plan. They just don't know it. They do not see that Jesus would be their hope of salvation. Instead, they were trusting in their own righteous deeds. Even their standards were not up to God's standards. And the very fact that hatred and envy poured out of them in response to Christ, it shows how lost they really were. And what these men are doing is very common. You and I can be guilty of thinking too highly of ourselves. We too can be self-righteous. We can be proud. We can look down on others thinking that we are better than them. No, you must humble yourself. You must see your own sinfulness and reject this self-righteous attitude. 
so you see your need of Christ. Well, secondly, be wary of seeking man's approval rather than God's approval in verses 2 to 10. So we come to the person of Pontius Pilate. And Pilate is a very interesting character. He is a Roman governor who doesn't have a great reputation with the Jews. There are many historical records about Pilate because he was in this office for 10 years. And throughout this time, he is known for hating the Jews, which must have made his job very difficult. He enjoyed humiliating the Jews. On one occasion, he needed extra money to build a water supply, and so he decided to simply raid the temple treasury. And when the Jews protested, he had his soldiers dress in disguise and mingle in with the protesters. And at an agreed signal, they removed their disguise and they clubbed a large number of protesters to death. That was how ruthless Pilate was. He was eventually removed from office when he massacred Samaritans who were gathering for worship at Mount Gerasim. And so his hatred of the Jews, especially the Jewish leadership, maybe helps us understand Pilate's attempt to protect Jesus. In verse 2, we read that Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? So is this accusation true? Are you leading a revolution? Do you see yourself as king over these people? Probably the whole thing just seemed incredulous to Pilate, that a man would claim to be king and yet have no armed support. He would claim to be a Jewish king and yet not have the support of the Jewish religious establishment. There is nothing kingly about this king. And so Jesus responds, it is as you say, meaning yes, but not the way you think. And so Jesus accepts the title king, but he hints that it's not how Pilate would understand kingship. Now the chief priests we read are still present and they do not like that Jesus is swaying Pilate. And they accuse Jesus of many things here. Their thinking is, if you throw enough mud at the wall, some of it will stick. So we're not sure of their accusations. Possibly it was this destruction of the temple, or how Jesus was swaying crowds of people, or it was Jesus' disregard of Jewish traditions. Unlikely did they mention Jesus' miracles, or Jesus' teaching, or his exorcisms. And Jesus' response to these accusations is nothing. He's silent. And this surprises Pilate. We read that he marveled at Jesus for not responding to their testimony. So Pilate would be used to prisoners coming before him, pleading their cause. They would either be pleading their innocence, or they would take the opportunity to make a defiant speech seizing their moment before Rome. But Jesus remains silent. He does not respond to the false attacks. And Pilate is watching on, seeing these chief priests becoming more desperate in their attacks, while Jesus is calmly silent. It doesn't affect him. How would you respond if you were receiving false accusations against you? You would be angry. At the very least, you would be upset. But Jesus is fulfilling scripture here. We noticed this last time. He was prepared for this. He knew he would face lies, 
But they also knew that he was the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 who would remain silent. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. And so we see Jesus in both courts, in the Jewish court, in Caiaphas' house, and in the Gentile court, in Pilate's palace. And so that's the sum of the whole world, Jews and Gentiles together against Christ. And Jesus responds by being silent. And it's not that Jesus could not defend himself. He would have destroyed their arguments. We have seen that in earlier passages in Mark. No, Christ understood that he would establish his kingdom by saying nothing. And Paul helps us understand what Jesus was doing in his letter to Timothy. Uh, You have this in your outline, 1 Timothy 6. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep his commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing, which he will manifest in his own time. He who is the blessed and only Pontinent, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in an unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. So Paul is instructing Timothy how to fight, and it's not the way you would imagine. It's like Jesus' good confession. It's not by weapons. It's by testimony. And for Jesus, this meant a silent testimony that spoke volumes. And Jesus was not silent because he was not powerful. You know, Paul points that out in that beautiful doxology, describing him as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But Jesus would set up his kingdom by remaining silent. Well, this would not be the world's way. And so Pilate, he does not see Jesus as a threat. He does not see Jesus as a risk to his own reputation. And so he hopes the crowd who have gathered would get him off the hook. For there was this custom at the feast of Passover to release a prisoner. And it would be the people who decide. And this is why Uh, Pilate is probably in Jerusalem at this time. He would have to oversee this release. In verse 8, the crowds are demanding that Pilate fulfill this tradition. And so Pilate offers to them in verse 9, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Verse 10, we see Pilate recognizes Jesus' innocence. He doesn't see him as a threat. He knows the only reason that Jesus is here is because chief priests were jealous of him. He sees that Jesus is a victim of their envy. And Pilate doesn't want to fulfill the chief priest's requests. He's hoping the crowd will help him out. But they don't. The people ask for Barabbas to be released. Pilate pleads for Jesus again by asking, What then do you want me to do with him you call the king of the Jews? And their response is to crucify him. We read a Pilate pleading for Jesus again. Why? What evil has he done? And the crowd simply shout out, crucify him, all the louder. This crowd is quickly getting out of control. Verse 15, we see Pilate's true colors. 
wanting to gratify the crowd, he released Barabbas to them and delivered Jesus to be scourged and crucified. Pilate could see that Jesus was innocent, but he gave in to his fear of man rather than doing the right thing. And what Pilate is doing is very common. We see this in politicians all the time. Our own president, who has been in politics all his life, throughout that time, he continues to change his position to please the crowd and to protect his job. He has no integrity. And likewise, Pilate has no integrity when he does not use his authority to protect an innocent man. He rejects Jesus to save himself. And so we see Pilate for who he is, a coward. But you and I, we're not that different. We're often cowards in the face of others who appear more powerful than ourselves. Our concern is often, what will people think of me? Not, what does God think of me? And so you need to be wary of seeking man's approval rather than God's. Well, thirdly, be wary of following the crowd in verses 11 to 15. So we've already considered the crowd that is meeting outside of Pilate's court. Verse 11, we see that they are easily manipulated. The chief priests stir up the crowd. These wicked men who are desperate to see Jesus put to death, they infiltrate the crowd to get their way. Many of the the commentaries in speaking about the crowd, they point out that the crowd is unlikely to be the same crowd that welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem when they shouted Hosanna and they lay down palm branches and cloaks at his feet as he walked by riding on a donkey. Instead, this crowd would be made up of the entourage of the chief priests. They would be some of the same people who Peter met in Caiaphas' courtyard. This is early in the morning. It's unlikely for a completely fresh crowd to gather so soon. Instead, the people here would be those who are connected to the temple. These are the ones who have the most to lose because of Christ, because he had attacked their traditions. He had attacked their livelihoods by clearing out the temple. And so it's no wonder that they want Jesus crucified. But what is surprising is that they asked for Barabbas to be released. Last December, there was a prisoner exchange between the U.S. and Russia. Brittany Griner, a basketball player who voluntarily went to Russia and got captured, she was exchanged for a Russian arms dealer known as the Merchant of Death. And it was highly controversial. Many questioned the wisdom of the Biden administration for doing this exchange. Well, this too is a highly controversial prisoner exchange in our passage, as Mark points out. Now, out of all the gospel writers, Mark goes into most detail about this controversial prisoner. And we read in verse 7, And there was one named Barabbas who was chained with his fellow rebels. They had committed murder in the rebellion. Barabbas was a zealot, a terrorist, a political freedom fighter. He even murdered innocent lives to accomplish the goal of a free Israel, free from Roman rule. This man was a wicked man. He was deserving of crucifixion. And what is interesting is that the crowd would support someone like Barabbas. Considering that this crowd is connected to the temple and its large-scale sacrificial enterprise, 
And it was the Romans who were allowing the Jews to keep worshipping at the temple. Why would they release Barabbas, who would jeopardize all of this? Barabbas and his fellow zealots, they used violence against the Romans to make it difficult for them to rule over the people. And the Romans would then respond by clamping down on the Jews and clamping down then on their traditions like temple worship. And so this is a strange request by the crowd instigated by the chief priests. But it shows their hatred of Jesus. They would rather have Barabbas released, who is a known criminal who sought political freedom by violent means, rather than Jesus Christ, who had done nothing wrong and who sought to establish his kingdom peacefully. Hatred can cause us to do wicked things. Hatred prevents us from think, thinking so that, like the crowd, we just simply react. And we see that in history. You can consider Nazi Germany and how the people followed the hatred of the Nazis that they were teaching. They didn't think it through. They simply reacted. Wilmhurst writes, Many today follow the example of the crowd and simply borrow a ready-made opinion from someone else, swayed by a soundbite or inherited prejudice. So you need to be careful and you need to consider your own thoughts and feelings. Are they grounded in the truth? Or are you being easily persuaded by others in your reaction to Christ? Do not listen to the crowd. Do not listen to the world. But listen to the truth made clear in God's word. Well, fourthly, be wary of mocking the truth. Verses 16 to 20. Another group of people that react to Jesus is that of the soldiers. Again, we see something extraordinary happening here. The soldiers lead him into praetorium, and we read that the whole garrison is called together. Why would the whole garrison come out if Jesus wasn't of any significance? But Jesus was significant. and Everyone had heard of him, and they wanted to see him. But in Jesus' apparent weakness... The soldiers, they demonstrate their strength. And so we see Jesus here not suffering under a few soldiers, but under a whole battalion attacking him. And they did this by mocking him. They clothed him in purple. Purple's the color of royalty. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They salute him and shout, Heal, King of the Jews. They bow down to him and pretend to worship him. But they also spat on him and they struck him. Now remember why Jesus is here. Verse 15, Pilate delivers Jesus to be scourged. Now scourging was a very serious punishment. It was whipping someone with a whip, but that whip would have bits of bone or rock embedded into the whip. So that when the whip came down, it made serious damage. And many prisoners actually died from being scourged. They never made it to the cross. Now, it seems strange. Why would Pilate have Jesus scourged? Surely this was unnecessary, especially as Pilate seemed to be showing leniency to Jesus. It's not obvious in Mark's account, but in John's account, after Jesus was scourged, we read of Pilate showing Jesus again to the people. John 20, verse 4, Pilate then went out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. And then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. And Pilate says this 
because Jesus would now be unrecognizable after the scourging. Fulfilling the words of Isaiah 52, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So in reading John's account, you see the crowd. They still have no interest in releasing Jesus. He's returned to the soldiers who take off the purple cloth and lead him out to be crucified. For the soldiers, Jesus was an opportunity for mockery, a time, an opportunity to have a fun time. In their boredom, Jesus was their plaything. Rather than grapple with the claims that Jesus was making, they make a joke of it all. And again, we see this all the time. How often Jesus is the butt of jokes. Comedians, politicians, actors, musicians, they all mock Christ. They even depict him. They even depict the crucifixion for people to laugh at him. And so they do the same as these soldiers. They believe Jesus to be weak. They have no idea of the foolishness of their actions. But Jesus is not weak. He is the king. He is powerful. And so you are not to mock Christ. Instead, you are to see him as the king. You are to submit to him. Well, finally, notice, be aware aware of your substitute, Jesus Christ. The last person I want you to consider is that of Barabbas. Now, from our text, we don't have that much to go on when it comes to Barabbas, nor do we have much to go on from church history. Tradition states that after his release, Barabbas watches Jesus' crucifixion and that he later gets killed in another insurrection. We really don't know how he responded to Jesus dying in his place. But Barabbas is a type. He is an example of all who Jesus dies for. Wilson writes, We are clearly intended to see ourselves in this man, destined for death, but finding freedom and life through the death of another. Barabbas was a wicked man. He deserved to die this death. He knew the consequences for rebellion would be death. And yet he chose rebellion. We are like Barabbas. We are also rebels against God. And we choose to rebel against God. We are responsible for our behavior. We are guilty. We can't blame someone else. And the consequences of our sinful behavior is death. And how striking it is that Barabbas, who was on death row, is pardoned. Not for anything that he did. He in no way was unable to undo his wrong. Wilson writes, Barabbas is due to die for his sins, and he deserves to. Yet without doing anything to merit mercy, he discovers Jesus is going to die instead. Having awoken on Friday morning, expecting nothing but a slow and horrible death, by evening he is home with his family to celebrate the Sabbath. So Barabbas was set free, and Jesus died in his place. Jesus Christ was the substitute for Barabbas. They both are convicted of the same crimes. They are both seen as rebels rebelling against Rome. But only Barabbas was guilty. Jesus was innocent. J.C. Ryle writes, The guilty is set free and the innocent is put to death. The great sinner is delivered and the sinless one remains bound. Barabbas is spared and Christ is crucified. But you and I are like Barabbas. We're destined to death. God cannot ignore our sin. 
But yet, like Barabbas, we find our freedom. We find our life in and through Christ. And so Jesus Christ is our substitute. Barabbas maybe seems so unrelatable to us. None of us are terrorists. None of us are leading an insurrection. But the truth is, we still have that same rebellious nature as Barabbas. You like him. You are without hope. You're worthy of condemnation. And yet Christ died for you. As Paul says in Romans 5, that Pastor Rich read, but God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so as we consider these different reactions to Jesus Christ in this passage, we see the right reaction is to see Christ as our substitute. But he came to die in your place to save you from your sin. That's why you are to put your faith in him. Any other reaction? That's a misunderstanding of who Jesus is. So do not put your trust in yourself or in others or in good times. Instead, put your trust in Jesus Christ. He is your substitute. He saves you from the death that you deserve. And he gives you life. Some of you may recall the Potomac air crash in 1982. This is a plane taking off from Dulles Airport in Washington, D.C., It failed to gain elevation and it crashed onto a bridge before falling into the freezing Potomac River. And only six of the plane's 79 passengers and crew survived. But it's the story of one man's heroism that I want you to consider. Several of the passengers had managed to attach themselves onto the plane's fuselage. And when the rescue helicopter came, this passenger, 50-year-old Arlen Williams, he refused the rescue harness. And instead, he reached the harness to the other survivors. He handed away the lifeline that would have dragged him to safety. And instead, he rescued the lives of several of these passengers who were strangers to him. And by the time the helicopter came back to rescue him, the tail section of the plane had sunk, dragging Arlen Williams under the icy water. And so this man gave up his life to save and rescue strangers. He willingly substituted his own life so that others could survive by giving them his lifeline. And so likewise with Christ, he gave up his own life to rescue you. So don't place your trust in yourself or in others or in good times. Instead, place your trust in Jesus Christ, your substitute. He saves you from the death you deserve. And instead, he gives you life. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father God, we do thank you for your word. And as we consider these different reactions to Christ, we are challenged about our own reaction to Christ. Lord, forgive us when we see ourselves as self-righteous or when we respond cowardly, afraid of the crowd, or when we even make a mockery of Christ to avoid the truth. Instead, Lord, help us to see ourselves as guilty, as deserving of death for our sinfulness, but that we would also see Christ as our substitute, that through him and through his death, we have life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please turn your blue psalm book to Psalm 69a. Psalm 69a, this is a messianic psalm where these words speak of Christ. 
They speak of Christ, our substitute, who took on our sins and so received its curse. And so let's sing these words, trusting our substitute, Jesus Christ, for it is in him that we have life. Let's stand and sing Psalm 69a.